When I was younger, just a bad little kid My mama noticed funny things I did Like shooting puppies with a BB gun I'd poison guppies, and when I was done I'd find a pussycat and bash in its head That's when my mama said What did she say? She said, my boy, I think someday You'll find a way to make your natural tendencies pay You'll be a dentist You have a talent for causing things Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. For new listeners, this podcast is dedicated to reading the American literary tradition uh, about 100 pages at a time. Well, for today, we'll be starting our examination of McTeague by Frank Norris. McTeague was published in 1899 at the height of Frank Norris's tragically short career. It came out in the same year that he was planning his epic on the life cycle of wheat from production production to consumption. A story, by the way, that is one of the most important in American history. But we'll get to that in a couple weeks. McTeague is perhaps the most well-known of his works. It has been filmed twice during the pre-code era. One of these films has been lost. The story is a pretty straightforward and quite compelling. McTeague is a working-class man who learned enough of working in mines and being trained by other people to become a dentist. He marries his friend's cousin, Trina, after falling for her during her visits to his office. Before they marry, she wins $5,000 in a lottery, which increases the jealousy of her cousin who had always wanted to marry her. Their marriage is plagued by Trina's conservative preservation of the lottery winnings. When McTeague loses his right to practice dentistry when it is exposed that he lacks a degree, The family quickly declines. Trina becomes more obsessed with hoarding her wealth and savings. McTeague takes up drinking and eventually leaves Trina due to built-up resentments, including her forcing McTeague to sell most of his possessions rather than tap into the family nest egg. One day, McTeague comes to coerce money from Trina and in the process kills her. McTeague takes the money, which Trina has already exchanged for gold, and flees. He works in the mines, his original job, but has to flee to Death Valley. He dies there with an old friend who had tracked him down. Along with his main story are side characters who build on the themes of the novel. In particular, one couple reinforces the trends of Trina and McTeague, while another provides a way out. For this episode, I will go through and analyze the first eight chapters, and then talk about the characters, because much of this story is character-driven. So chapter one. Chapter one is about McTeague and his daily life. He works in a small practice that he calls dental parlors, even though it only has one room. He mostly gets patients from the working class neighborhood of San Francisco. On Sunday afternoons, he smokes cheap tobacco, drinks steam beer, and plays a handful of tunes in his concertina. He has spent his money on many little items precious to him, such as books of dentistry, prints of paintings he likes, and other little knickknacks. He is essentially a simple, even a stupid man, but he seems to enjoy his his life and its modest pleasures. His main ambition in life is to get a large gold tooth to display in front of his in front of his practice. His best friend lives upstairs for him and is named Marcus. He's a political radical of sorts, but the type that is very impressionable. He can recite anti-capitalist sentiments, but seems not to have any deeper understanding outside of what he comes across in pamphlets. He tells McTeague that his cousin Trina will come by to get a tooth repaired. 
In this chapter, we also get a window into the community of Polk Street. It's a really nice picture of the working class communities that developed in cities like New York, San Francisco, Baltimore, Philadelphia in the later 19th century. From noon to evening, this is quoting the book, from noon to evening, the population of the street was of a mixed character. The street was busiest at that time. A vast prolonged murmur arose, a mingled shuffling of feet, the rattle of wheels, and the t heavy trundling of cable cars. At four o'clock, the school children once more swarmed the sidewalks, again disappearing with sudden, surprising suddenness. At six, the great homeward march commenced. The cars were crowded, the laborers thronged on the sidewalks, and the newsboys chanted their evening paper. Then all at once the street fell quiet. Hardly a soul was in sight. The sidewalk was deserted. It was supper hour. Evening began, and one by one the multitude of lights from the demononic glare of the druggist windows to the dazzling blue whiteness of the electric globes grew thick from the crowd from the street corner to street corner once more the street was crowded now there was no thought but for amusement the cable cars were loaded with theater goers men in high hats and young girls in floral opera cloaks on the sidewalks were groups and couples the plumber's apprentices the girls of the ribbon counters and the little families that lived in the second stories over their shops the dressmakers the small doctors the harness makers all the various inhabitants of the street were abroad, strolling idly from shop window to shop window, taking the air after the day's work. Groups of girls collected on the corners, talking and laughing very loud, making remarks upon the young men that passed them by. So this is the, the working class community of Polk Street um, that really becomes almost a character in its own way in this novel. Now there's an important point I want to mention here. Throughout the novel, Norris always identifies McTeague as the dentist. This is even when he must end his practice and is no longer a dentist in any practical sense. Norris is defining our character based on his skill and his training, not on his education and degree, which he lacks. So I just think that's an important point, and I noticed it when I was reading this book. Chapter 2. We meet our first side characters, two older residents of the community, who are sort of in love with each other, but have not made any move to develop a relationship. Their names are Miss Baker and Old Grannis. Now these, in a way, are our good guys in the story. They're our model of how to develop an authentic and shared relationship. We also meet Maria Macapa, a Mexican woman who keeps rooms for lodgers. She's a gossip hound and will play a critical role in our story. Trina Sepe arrives for her appointment. Her front teeth has been shattered in an accident. While McTeague's main job in the past has been pulling teeth and filling cavities and sometimes crafting crowns, he desires to fix her face and preserve her beauty, so he works out a plan to save one broken tooth and use a bridge and a crown to replace the gap of the one that has to be pulled. Somehow Trina's beauty pushes McTeague into being a good or even above average dentist, not just an adequate one. And we see for a moment that McTeague could have perhaps gone to dental school. Chapter 3. This chapter is mostly about Maria Macapa and the other people of the community. Maria goes door to door looking for junk to sell to a fence. Both Miss Baker and Old Grannis are hoarders. Grannis hoards old newspapers and pamphlets, which he refashions into booklets. Miss Baker hoards old shoes. Maria takes the stuff that she collects from the neighborhood to Zerkoff. Now, Zerkoff is one of the most difficult characters to talk about in this novel. Um, as I talked about in a previous episode, Frank Norris was an anti-Semite. 
and commonly included characters in his novels that re reflect this. And it, it's here probably on its most unfortunate display. This is how Zirkoff is described by, by Norris. This is on page 293 of the Library of America version of the book. Maria found Zirkoff himself in the back room, cooking some sort of meal over an alcohol stove. Zirkoff was a Polish Jew. Curiously enough, his hair was fiery red. He was a dry, shriveled old man of 60-odd. He had the thin, eager, cat-like lips of the covetous, eyes that had grown keen as those of a lynx from long searching amidst muck and debris, and claw-like prehensile fingers, the fingers of a man who accumulates but never distributes. It was impossible to look at Zirkov and not know instantly that greed, inordinate, insatiable greed, was the dominant passion of the man. He was the man with the rake, groping hourly in the muck heap of his city for gold, for gold, for gold. It was his dream, his passion. At every instant, he seemed to feel a generous, solid weight of the crude, flat metal on his palms. The glint of it was constantly in his eyes. The jangle of it sang forever in his ears as the jangling of cymbals. He also has a very strange relationship with Maria. He gets excited listening to her tell stories about her family who had gold plates back in Central America. This is a story she tells when he demands it. Well, it was this way. It was when I was little. My folks must have been rich. Oh, rich in the millions. Coffee, I guess. But there was a large house. But I can only remember the plate. Oh, that service of plate. It was wonderful. There were more than a hundred pieces, and every one of them gold. You should have seen the sight when the leather trunk was opened. It fair dazzled your eyes. It was a yellow blaze like a fire, like a sunset, such glory, all piled up together, one piece over another. Why, if the room was dark, you'd think you could just see the same with all that glitter there. There wasn't a piece that wasn't so much as scratched. Sorry, there wasn't a piece that was so much as scratched. Every one like a mirror, smooth and bright, just like a little pool when the sun shines into it. And she goes on this way in rich detail about these gold plates. Um, and Zirkoff, meanwhile, uh, basically is, gets excited by it, almost uh, gets almost sexual arousal from hearing the story from Maria about these plates. It's really weird. I think the story could work better if Norris didn't make Zirkoff a Jew. He certainly didn't have to be. Um, the fact that we have a character here who gets obsessed about just hearing stories of gold is perhaps interesting and fits with the themes of the book. But it's just so distracting to a modern reader that the character is a, is a Jew. Um, now, even if this character is a bit unbelievable, it works thematically in the story as the carrier of the apotheosis of greed. Chapter 4. In this chapter, McTeague finishes his work on Trina's mouth. During one operation, he kisses her while she's under the gas. But this is as far as it went at the time. It's certainly not... Um, Obviously not excusable to modern readers, but uh, I'm not sure how people at the time took this. Um, McTeague simply cannot get Trina out of his mind, and he becomes obsessed with courting her. He talks about this with Marcus, who secretly wants to court Trina. McTeague risks his friendships for the hope of a relationship with Trina. When he tells Marcus that he's interested in her, Marcus is broken up, but he decides not to get in the way. Now, it's not clear to me why he does not do more to fight for Trina. McTeague is a large man. Um, certainly he could 
defeat Marcus in a fight, and later in the novel this will come to pass. But maybe he simply values the friendship. My guess is that Marcus relies actually on being a victim. His socialism is largely based on resentment and anger. He's not a sophisticated economist. He's not really interested in the working class struggle. He's interested in resentment and anger. He's not a character who could understand his place in the world if it wasn't as a victim. Losing Trina to his friend McTeague is simply another resentment that he carries around in his back, on, in his backpack. Um, if Old Granis is a hoarder of pamphlets and Zerkov a hoarder of gold, Marcus is a hoarder of resentments and bitterness. Chapter 5. McTeague has begun courting Trina and meets her family. The Seppes are an immigrant family from Germany. Uh, and they're quite nice. They're, they're interesting to watch. And the scenes with them are, are quite delightful in the novel. Um, and they're some of the happier um, passages in this overall very bleak and very difficult novel to read. Her parents have some doubts, but seem to support the coupling. Chapter 6. Trina thinks very hard if she loves McTeague. And spends much of her worry thinking about his massive size and strength. There are some really interesting passages in this section that make us ponder whether any of our decisions about coupling are really very rational. Now, this is on page 236 of, again, the Library of America version. Did she love McTeague? Difficult question. Did she choose him for better or for worse, deliberately of her own free will? Or was Trina herself allowed even a choice in the taking of that step that was to make or mar her life? The woman is awakened and suddenly from her sleep catches blindly at what first her newly opened eyes lit upon. It is a spell, a witchery, ruled by chance alone, inexplicable, a fairy queen enamored by a clown with ass, ass's ears. McTeague had awakened the woman, and whether she would or not, she was now irrevocably, she was now his irrevocably. Struggle against it as she would, she belonged to him, body and soul, for life or for death. She had not sought it, she had not desired it, the spell was laid upon her. Was it a blessing? Was it a curse? It was It was one. Sorry, it was all one. She was his, indissolubly for evil or for good. So the suggestion here is that we really don't couple in any rational sense. We just kind of fumble through life until fate pairs us with someone. Yet, she has to convince herself. Maybe it's for this reason. She has to convince herself that she's in love with them. And she has to be... She has to accept the constant reinforcement from McTeague that he loves her. So the McTeague takes the Sapes to a theater, a fun little variety show. McTeague's ignorance of life outside of his small world is put on display when he tries to buy tickets. It's almost an uncomfortable scene to read as he's talking with the ticket agent. He says he doesn't want um, seats on one side of the theater, but the ticket agent says, well, that's where the loud drums are. And he says, I don't want to be by the drums. And he, does, he doesn't seem to understand that you can't have your cake and eat it too in the sense of uh, seating at a theater. Well, they go to the show and it's described in some detail. The Seppes, the Seppes especially Mrs. Seppe, is delighted to see a yodeler on, on stage. And we get a nice little window into one, one popular mass entertainment of the late 19th century. After the show, they return home and find that Trina has won $5,000 on an illegal lottery. Now, as I said in my review of Vandover and the Brute, with currencies at this time, you can roughly multiply them by 25 to get a good sense of how much money this is. 
So $5,000 is perhaps $125,000 in current um, money. It's not a lot. Of course, none of us would turn our nose at that amount, but it is an amount that is about right for starting a family on a, on a, on a, on a good future. It's not enough to make them certainly rich. Chapter 7. Both Marcus and Maria feel jealous. Marcus feels jealous because he believes he could have been rich if he hadn't let McTeague marry Trina. And Maria feels jealous because she's the one who sold the winning lottery ticket to, Maria, to Trina. So they both have built-in resentments towards uh, Trina and McTeague. Maria moans about her loss to Zerkoff, and Zerkoff convinces Maria to speak to, her, to, to him once more about the gold plates in her ancestral home. Marcus, however, keeps his rage bottled up. Chapter 8. The couple gets ready for their wedding. Trina puts her weanings into bonds that will earn about $25 a month. We learn about how Trina makes some money um, by making Noah's Ark's toys for a relative, and that's her main source of income. Trina takes to demanding verbal expressions of McTeague's love, an act that makes McTeague incredibly uncomfortable. He's not the kind of man who, who feels the need to express his love day to day, but Trina demands it from him. Marcus and McTeague have a lunch that breaks down over some old and relatively insignificant debts. Uh, I think something like Mc Marcus bought him like a beer or something and Marcus never paid him or McTeague never paid him back and he starts to demand his money back. Um, McTeague, you know, and there's another argument they have about McTeague staying one night at Marcus's or something and uh, he didn't pay for it. Marcus begins to demand some of the lottery winnings because in his view, he allowed McTeague to marry Trina and because of that, he's entitled to some of the money that would have been his had he married Trina. Later, they fight again, this time more violently. Marcus breaks McTeague's pipe and he attacks him with a knife. He nearly kills McTeague with this knife and this essentially breaks their friendship for good. Uh, the friendship will kind of drag on and on, um, but it's essentially done at this point. When McTeague returns home, he finds that Trina has bought for him the gold tooth sign that he has waited for for so long. Um, if we take the McTeague from the beginning of the novel, he has accomplished his life's goal at this point, getting this gold tooth, because that seems to be his only ambition as the uh, novel opens. Something important has been established at this point. Trina is emotionally needy and demands constant reassurance of McTeague's love, which at this point she attempts to buy. But we learn later that this purchase was intended to be the final such material expression of love. The tooth is, we are not surprised to learn, gold. Now this story is really very much character driven. So at this point it may be worthwhile to go through the major characters. And the thing I want to say here is that they are all hoarders. McTeague. At the start of the novel, he seems to be the least concerned about material things. He lives a simple life, enjoying only Sundays off when he drinks cheap beer and plays his concertina. But he collects many knickknacks, and he develops a personal he develops personal feelings for these knickknacks. Um, it's really striking that by the end of the novel, he feels more love and more passion and more desire to hold on to his concertina than he does his wife. Trina, she grows to hoard her wealth and money, but she's also a hoarder of McTeague's love, which she demands in the more material form of blatant statements. She asks him to say, to confirm that you love me big. And this is a common statement she makes. Tell me you love me big, you know, on and on like that. Now, Marcus, as I already have established, he collects resentments and grievances, particularly of the economic 
sort. Maria and Zirkoff, these two seem to hoard memories and fantasies about wealth. Neither of them are, are rich. They're literally bottom feeders living off the poor, living off uh, the garbage that they can collect and recycle into the capitalist economy. They take and sell and recycle trash, essentially, to, to earn their living, but they spend their time dreaming about gold. Miss Baker collects shoes. Old Granis collects pamphlets. There are relationships between these characters, and things aren't as bleak as they may seem. McTeague and Marcus, at the opening of the novel, seem to have a real friendship. McTeague and Trima, Trina seem to have some feelings for each other. McTeague is a little too stupid to have purely lurid designs on Trina. He at least convinces himself that he loves her. He gets into his mind to possess her, but he does seem to have feelings for her, and he expresses love. But if that is love any more than, is that any more than the passion and the love he feels for the gold tooth or the other trinkets he collects is unclear. Uh, nah, I'll take that back. It's pretty clear that Trina is meant to be just another knickknack in McTeague's collection. Well, that does it for this episode on Frank Norris's McTeague. In the next hundred pages of the novel, we'll look at how McTeague's marriage to Trina turns out. Well, thanks for listening to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Uh, if you like this podcast, you can rate, subscribe, um, or comment on. Uh, if you want to contact me directly, you can do so at 100pagescast at gmail.com. And I will be back in 100 pages to continue the story of McTeague and Trina. Temperament's wrong for the priesthood And teaching would suit you still